Welcome back to the Word on Fire show. I'm Brandon Vaught, the content director at Word on Fire. Happy Easter. We've just entered into this most joyous season of the year. And while Bishop Barron is not with us, we wanted to share a clip from a past video he made on the true meaning of Easter. What does it mean to say that Jesus is risen from the dead? Well, that's the question Bishop answers in this short clip. So we hope you enjoy it, and then rest assured that Bishop Aaron will be with us back in studio next week for a new discussion for the Word on Fire show. Thanks. Well, I want to talk to you about Easter today, and um, the trouble with Easter is we tend to domesticate it, and that's the problem with a lot of uh, the interpretations of religion today, especially Christianity. Um, we shouldn't domesticate Easter. Easter is an explosive feast, an explosive reality. Let me get at it this way. Go back to Jesus' time, so first century Judaism. There were lots of views about what happened to people when they died. So, for example, there were many Jews relying on a venerable tradition that would say the dead are just dead. You die and that's it. You go into the ground. Um, others said that the dead go down to shadowy Sheol, like a sort of underworld. Um, others said that the souls of the just are in the hand of God. Um, it's a bit like a Hellenistic or Greek view that soul escapes from the body. Still others would hold that the righteous dead at the end of time would rise together. Think of Martha in the uh, Lazarus story when she says, Oh no, I know he will rise with the resurrection of the just. That's what she's talking about. So there's all kinds of views about what happened. Here's the point about Easter. None of those familiar frameworks of understanding is used by any of the Gospel writers. These are all Jews, or people very much under the influence of Judaism, and they don't use any of those frameworks when talking about what happened after the death of Jesus. They don't say, oh, he went down to shadowy Sheol. They don't say, oh, his soul has escaped from his body. They don't say, oh, we're hoping one day he was such a righteous man that one day with all the righteous dead he will arise. They don't say that. What they say is that this Jesus, this Yeshua from Nazareth, whom they knew, whom they touched and heard and looked upon, this friend of theirs, Yeshua from Nazareth, who had been brutally put to death by the Romans, and mind you, Romans were very good at putting people to death. It was a specialty of theirs. They didn't uh, make mistakes or fool around. This Jesus, whom they knew, who had been put to death and buried, was alive again through the power of God. That's the resurrection message. If I can put it in some relation to the old frameworks, you might say what they expected of all the righteous dead at the end of time happened in time to this Jesus. See, and it's this very novelty of the resurrection message that gives all the verve and energy to the New Testament. What I've called many times the grab you by the lapels quality. The writers of the New Testament are not trading in bland spiritual generalities. They're not trading in spiritual lessons and symbolic things. They're talking about this event that was so overwhelming that it changed everything. So they wanted the whole world to know about it. That's the resurrection message. That's the novelty and spice and verve and distinctiveness of it. You know, in, in 
the last two centuries, really, both inside and outside the church, there have been attempts by authors and thinkers to relegate the resurrection to the world of mythology. Now, I love myths. I love the myths of the ancient world. Um, they play a very important role in the development of a civilization. Myths tell us you know, truths, deep truths about nature, about the cosmos, about ourselves, all of that. But I agree with um, C.S. Lewis, who said long ago, those who claim that the gospel stories are mythic simply haven't read many myths. Now, Lewis was a specialist in mythic literature. He knew what he was talking about. What he meant was this. Myths deal in these great archetypal abstractions about nature, about the cosmos, about society, which is why myths are placed, I'll use the technical term, in illo tempore, in that time. Or we say, once upon a time or update it in a galaxy far, far away. The point is, they're trying to tell general abstract truths, which is why they're not placed in a particular time. Then there are the Gospels. What do you find there? Not these grand, sort of gassy abstractions. But the resurrection stories are set in very particular places, like Judea and Jerusalem. More to it, there are real people involved. Peter, John, James, Thomas. More to it, it happened, not in illo tempore, once upon a time. It happened when Pontius Pilatus was the governor of Judea. Well, this is the Roman governor. We got coins with his image. Go to, to uh, Israel, you can find archaeological evidence of Pontius Pilatus. The point is, the Gospels are grounded and rooted in history in a way that myths are not. And that shows the distinctiveness and the texture of these things. Here's the last observation about it. And again, I love the myths. Norse myths, Greek, Roman myths, wonderful. Love the characters, love what they mean of great literary power. But there are no martyrs for mythic characters. Name a martyr for Thor. Name a martyr for Zeus. Name a martyr for Dionysus. They don't exist. Osiris. There's no martyr for Osiris. But every early witness of the resurrection, practically every early witness of the resurrection, went to his death defending the dense historical claim of the resurrection. People don't die for archetypal stories. They die for this particular truth. And you find that now in spades in the Christian um, dispensation. Okay, so there's the resurrection in its uniqueness. But what, what does it mean? What, what implications can we draw from the resurrection? Well, here's the first one. In the light of the resurrection, we have to radically rethink our usual understanding of the relationship between order and violence. Now, here's what I mean. Look at every major story in, in, across the civilizations. This is from the Epic of Gilgamesh to the Game of Thrones. What do you find? This great myth that order comes about through violence. It's usually through some great act of violence that order is established, and when order is lost, it's by a greater act of violence that it's restored, right? You commit me with a knife, I'll commit you with a gun. You commit me with your army, I'll make sure I get a bigger army. There's the story of so much of human civilization, and it's very deep in our, in our psychological DNA, if you want. 
that order comes through violence. Well, in Jesus' time, what was the keeper of order? It was the empire of Rome. Talk about an empire that understood and believed this myth, right? It was through the uh, power and uh, ranginess of its army that Rome was able to establish order, and then through the threat of punishment, even terrible punishment, that it maintained order. What's the greatest example of this is the cross. Many have argued, I think with some persuasiveness, the most brutal form of execution ever devised, the cross. They think the Romans might have gotten it from the Persians or somewhere in the Middle East, but the Romans perfected it. Somebody uh, nailed or, or tied to this instrument of torture and then very slowly left to suffocate and bleed to death, even as animals uh, fed on your body. So this was a horrific form of execution. The Romans, of course, performed it publicly on purpose. They wanted people to see the cross. They wanted to see the crucified so it would have full deterrent effect. If there's, if there's no better symbol in some ways of the old myth of, of order through violence than a Roman cross. That's how Jesus dies. You cross us, pun intended, that's what we'll do to you. So, when he rises from the dead and appears to his followers who had, in his moment of greatest need, betrayed him, denied him, abandoned him, run from him, he's, he's back. He appears to them. We hear they are afraid. Now, because they're seeing something uncanny, certainly, but I've often wondered, is it also because this looks like the oldest myth in the world? If you're telling this story, you're a writer of fiction, you say, here's this wonderful man, this innocent person, good man, who's betrayed by his followers. He dies a terrible death, and now is back, and he visits his followers, those who betrayed him. What would you expect? In almost any telling of the story, you'd expect he's back for vengeance. He's going to restore order through a greater act of violence. That's not what happens, of course. Instead, the risen Jesus shows his wounds and then says, Shalom, peace. What is this now? What is this? It's an overturning, it's an undermining of the great myth. Divine order happens not through an answering violence, but by surrounding and absorbing hatred by love, by the undermining of aggression by forgiveness. It's the divine mercy that reestablishes order. See, that's exactly why the resurrection is the condition for the possibility, either implicitly or explicitly, of Martin Luther King in our country, of Gandhi in India, who learned it from the New Testament, uh, John Paul II in Poland, Bishop Tutu in South Africa, all the great practitioners of nonviolence. What are they going on? They're going on the assumption that a new story has been told. A deeper truth has been revealed. Order is not coming through violence, but order comes precisely through forgiveness, nonviolence, and love. Here's just the last point, a second implication from the resurrection. I think the resurrection means God's great yes to the whole of his creation. So we hear in Genesis that God makes all that exists outside of himself. He makes um, uh, the sun and moon and sky and planets. He makes the earth. He makes the sea. He makes all the planets and, and plants and animals. He makes even the things that creep and crawl on the earth. 
There's no hint in the Genesis account of Manichaeism or dualism or Puritanism. There's no setting of the good spiritual against the evil matter. No, no. Everything that God has made, including and especially the world and its materiality, is good. And the collectivity of it is very good. There's the biblical vision. So what happens? Well, through sin, God's creation is compromised. It's, it's um, not utterly destroyed, but it's compromised. So what does God do? He sends rescue operation after rescue operation. I mentioned a little while ago Noah's Ark is, is an evocation of that. The law, the temple, the prophets, the people, Israel itself, they're all meant to be rescue operations. What's God's final, unsurpassable rescue operation but Yeshua from Nazareth, who is his icon? Paul says the icon of the invisible God. He's the sheerest showing forth of the divine purpose. And what do you find, therefore, in the resurrection of Jesus from the dead? God's affirmation, yes, of the spiritual, but also of the physical. The bodily resurrection of Jesus means that God does not give up on his creation, but rather lifts it up, ratifies it, says yes to it. And that's why Easter, above all, is the ground for hope. Because we can say no all we want to God's purposes. We do it all the time. It's what it means to be a sinner. But God says yes to it. And that's the ground for hope. And I think that's the deepest meaning of Easter. Well, we hope you enjoyed this explanation from Bishop Barron on the meaning of Easter. As I mentioned in the opening, Bishop Barron will be with us next week in studio for a great new discussion episode of the podcast. So stay tuned for that. Thanks for listening. And we'll see you next week on the Word on Fire show. Music